Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Galatians chapter 3 as we continue our series. And uh, we're going to jump into uh, the end of Galatians 3 and then start into chapter 4. And as I was thinking about this passage, uh, and really chapter 3 in general, sometimes it just doesn't uh, connect well uh, with our culture. And part of that is, is we're not dealing with some of the same problems that the church, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago was dealing with. And so let's just remind ourselves a little bit of what happened, get ourselves in the context. And I, I think I, I want to explain a little bit why Paul is arguing what he's arguing. And then I, I want to kind of maybe take a stab at maybe what Paul would say to us today, 2,000 years later, just given the two different cultures and what they're wrestling with. So Paul goes on a missionary journey. He ends up going through uh, Galatia, this, this region. And as he's going through there, uh, he ends up planting some churches. Uh, it seems through, through the text of Galatians and other parts of scripture that uh, Paul maybe lingered here a little bit because of an, an illness of some sort that caused him to kind of have to take a pause and so as he's there, he establishes the churches, they come back, they kind of uh, work through the churches. And as Paul, after Paul leaves, a group of Jewish people who would say they believe in the Messiah come back through these regions and say, hey, Paul forgot to tell you a few things. And I'm, I'm making a little light of it, but basically they said, um, yeah, Jesus was the Messiah and faith in him is great, but you also need to be circumcised, you need to obey all these laws. And, uh, and Paul just, you know, didn't, emphasize that and he's wrong. And so they leave. And so Paul's writing this letter and he's, he's saying, you know, look, if you're going to add all this law and all this old way of living, you've missed the gospel. So our theme has been the gospel plus nothing equals everything. And so Paul now is arguing to both kind of the Jewish mind and now this Galatian mind who's bought into this not only have this, is this wrong, but let me show you how Christ is superior. And he's working his way through that. And so last week, we talked about how faith in Christ forms a multi-ethnic family, and it brings the promised Messiah, or the promised spirit, Jesus, too, in that. And the promise, uh, it also brings uh, a superior, a promise superior to the law. That's what we looked at last week. And so now Paul is going to say, let me just kind of back you through this. This is what it was like before, and here's what it's like after. And in between, we kind of have what I'm calling the turn. That is our acceptance, uh, our, our faith in Christ. So that's kind of a background of what we're doing, why, why Paul is arguing this. And so let's look at the passage. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, and he says kind of at the end there in verse 23, now before faith came, so this is the before part of the sermon, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in the Messiah Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into the Messiah have put on the Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is neither male and female, for you are all one in the Messiah, Jesus. And if you are the Messiahs, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we're going to look at before. This is our condition before the promise came. And then the turn, the promise coming, our salvation. And then after, what our identity is. Um, Our society is really obsessed with before and after. We have all sorts of things out there that people are trying to sell you. People are trying to get you to be a part of. And they love to show before and after pictures. And so whether it's, you know, fitness, you know, you kind of have the before and after fitness, you know, they try to show some pictures. I think they doctor it up a little bit. Or um, I, this was one of my favorites was on the internet. This was before and after the first day of, of, of kindergarten. This kid's all excited to go. He comes home just looking wiped out one day of school, right? Or maybe they're trying to sell a product and they say this is, you know, kind of the before picture and the after picture uh, if you use our product. Um, this was one of a little dog before coffee and after coffee, right? She could really perks us up. And uh, uh, this, this one is just too real, right? This is, uh, they have the picture of this beautiful living room and then a mess before kids and after kids. Some of you have experienced that stepping on a Lego at some point in time. So in Christ, what does is, what is the before and after look like? So before, this is our condition, remember we're talking about the gospel creates the multi-ethnic family. And we're in that chapters three and four where we're talking about this multi-ethnic family. And so Paul is using a lot of Jewish terminology there that maybe kind of confuses us a little bit, but then he keeps swapping back and forth between Gentile and Jewish language. It's kind of interesting. I hope to kind of show that. So we're looking at this multi-ethnic family. So the first thing here is our relationship to the law. Paul says in verse 23 of chapter 3, we are captive under the law. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. We're captive and we're waiting for this promise to come. We're in this situation, Paul is picturing Israel. Abraham gets the promise, 430 years the law comes, and then they're, they're waiting for the Messiah. They're just in this, this waiting pattern. And this whole time, the law is pictured as this huge weight over their head. 
They're carrying it. And then Paul kind of switches the metaphor in chapter four, verse three, talking to the Gentiles. And he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved by the elementary principles. So this law, not only were we under this weight of this law, but this law reveals sin and we're, we're just feeling the weight of it. And what Paul is saying to the, why would you want to go back to that? Why would you want to go back to this enslavement of, the, of the, the guilt and the pressure of this law? And so Paul brings up another imagery here, another picture. And he says, we're living under a guardian. Now, I think that, you know, we, we got the adult service here and um, this, we kind of understand this, but let's just, just map it out here so we're all on the same page. Okay, you have a child. Uh, and, and Paul is picturing here a wealthy family. And something happens to mom and dad. And so in the will, there is a guardian. There is a, a family that's going to take care of this child in between waiting for this child to become an adult. Now, historically, it's kind of interesting. It, it says, Paul says, until determined by the father. And when we look back at different historical things, uh, the child could be deemed an adult anywhere between like 14 and 24. Pretty big gap. But whether it was Jewish or, or Gentile, same kind of idea. And I think that this thing was probably a little bit more common in Paul's time. And part of that is just if you step back, Men weren't really allowed to marry, especially in Jewish culture, until they could show that they could provide for a family. And so they would have to have a job. They would usually add on to the family estate, another homestead, or, or in Israel, even today, they still will sometimes build up another story on the house. You just keep going up. And so because of that, men were often older. They married younger women. And so something might happen to the older man, you know, before the son comes of age. And so because of that, they had this system set up where here's the estate, but you can't have it until you're old enough. And until then, these people watch over you. So in one sense, you own everything, but you don't get to say, what happens with it? There's a guardian. And so Paul is using that illustration. The guardian cares for you. The guardian provides for you. It protects you. The guardian might nurture you and help you to grow up, but the guardian still rules over you. And so Paul is saying the law in this period of time served like a guardian. And that's our relationship. We're captive to it. We're, we're waiting for this promise or this, and then Paul kind of switches the imagery around until we become of age and then we're living with this other person, this other thing ruling over us and nurturing us until we get to that point. And then again, our relationship also to sin. And when we look at, when we look at our, our relationship to sin, we see that we're under it. We see that we're, we're, we're just totally captivated by it. So then we have the turn. Okay, so then Paul is using this terminology. He says, 
until Christ came, chapter 3, verse 24, in order that we might be what? Justified by faith. Verse 25, faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And then in chapter 4, he just, he, the gospel just bursts out in him. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Born of a woman, that is, he is, he is fully human. Born under the law. He, he grew up, he, he came uh, at the time that we were under this guardianship. Why? So that he could, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. What's Paul saying? He's saying Jesus came to redeem us from that, to get us out of that system. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. And as we look at this turn, I, I, what, what Paul wants us to see that, that Jesus, the promise, the Messiah, born of a woman, living this perfect life under the law, dying for our sins, redeeming us, this is a total game changer. This isn't something we want to we say, well, we want this and this. We, we just want the Messiah. It, it totally changes everything. Now, I, I think if Paul were speaking to us today, he would say, why do you want to pretend like you can live under that law? Why would you want to go back to that? Why would you want to create a system like that? And so Paul says, the after part is that you have a totally new identity in Christ. And I think one of the things the church needs to hear more than anything is that who we are is determined by our identity in Christ, not our culture. We want to grab onto something and say, that's the team I'm on. That's what part I'm of. That's who I am. And what, what Paul is saying is all that we are after Christ has come is we are new in him. So we want to spend really most of our time not looking back at the, the past, but looking forward to what Christ has for us. And so in your notes, I have seven changes that Paul mentions here very briefly of who we are because of the Messiah. And the first one is, we are all sons. He says in verse 26, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in the Messiah Jesus, you are all sons of God. Now, if some of you have a newer NIV post-2011, it says there, you are all children of God. Um, and the reason that the NIV, late NIV did that was that they were trying to make Paul seem less offensive. It seems like he's leaving women out here. But let me just say this, you totally miss the point of what Paul is saying if you change the terminology here. Because he's writing to men and women. And he is saying to them, you're all sons. 
Now, he's not, he's not trying to, to move into gender fluidity or whatever our society wants to make that. What he is saying is this. In that society, you were not an heir, sorry, unless you were a son. And in Jewish culture and in some Gentile cultures, the oldest son got two-thirds of the inheritance. The other third was split between whoever's left over. So what Paul is saying to the whole church, brothers and sisters, you are all full heirs in Christ Jesus. That's an identity. That's a status of who we are. And so what Paul said here is actually stunning. And to soften it misses his point. He's actually got a huge uppercut here. And so we are all sons. And he says in here as he goes on um, that we are sons in Christ. So we're the, we're, we're the oldest son. We're, we're, in the, we're in the major part of the inheritance. You know, sometimes we wrestle with maybe what it means that we are getting or promised a inheritance in Christ in the new kingdom. And, and you and I, um, our inheritance today look differently. Um, if you have an inheritance to, to give to your children um, you probably have set up a will and you've divided that, whatever's left, most likely evenly between your children. But in those days, most of the inheritance was in property. And so when Israel comes into the promised land, where he says, you're getting this land that wasn't yours. You're getting cities that you didn't build. You're getting vineyards that you didn't plant. And this is your property this is your inheritance. And so there's a part of ownership in the kingdom of God that is given to us as children of God. Second, he, he says that we are one in Christ. For in the Messiah Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There's, there's a oneness that happens in our relationship with Christ. Listen, what unites us is not a political party. What unites us is not a cause. What unites us as the church is Jesus Christ. We are one in Christ. Now, Paul has this other uh, next identity that, that uh, seems kind of odd to us, and I, I want to slow down a little bit on this one. He says, um, for as many of you as were baptized into the Messiah have put on the Messiah. Think of clothing here. You have, you have put it on. We are clothed with Christ. And the picture that Paul is painting is, is kind of multifaceted. First of all, when you are clothes, not as much in this society, but to some degree, 
can be an indicator of our identity. Rich or poor, middle class, areas in which we live, okay? I mean, you know, usually when somebody walks in with cowboy boots, I can say, oh, they live a little bit different life than I do, okay? Or, you know, if somebody wears dress shoes during the week versus work boots, right? There's a little bit of idea. Or how about, you know, when you used to have those, you know, uh, uniforms, right? With the names on it. It's an identifier, a police uniform, a, a fireman's uniform, a military uniform. It's an identifier. So first of all, when we put on Christ, our identity, what people see in us should be Christ. Timothy Keller pointed out, also your clothes are usually the closest thing to you, aren't they? Some of mine are getting a little closer. Right? It's, It is this idea of a close relationship with the Messiah. We're wrapped in him. We've put that on. Now, just think about that for a second. When we put on Christ and we go to work, when we put on Christ and we go to a family function, when we put on Christ and we go to the grocery store out in the community, what people should see It's Christ. That's what we're putting on because of our close relationship with him. Also, I I think there's a part of a, that we are imitation of Christ. We're, again, people should see see him in us. that's That's what should be shown. Being a follower of Jesus is not just a Sunday thing. It's meant to be put on and taken into the community. Now, the fourth thing there is I have, um, it's our acceptability to God. Now, we've used this illustration before, but let me just kind of walk you through it again. If God were to somehow, by the way, he does, know everything about us, and every sin we commit, he were to write down, Every wrong thought, every missed opportunity, every foul word, every time we wish bad on somebody who cut us off, God were to write that down. I mean, over time, that would just become a book, an encyclopedia grouping of our sins. And if this is us, our sins separate us from God. And the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray, but he has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So when God looks down, he doesn't see our sin anymore. And I've used that illustration a bunch of times, but I realize it's missing something. Because not only are we to be sinless. But God says we are to be holy as he is holy. I mean, you might be without sin, but we certainly haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves all the time. We certainly haven't put on holiness. So what Paul has been saying is not only are we free from this sin that Jesus died for and rose again and conquered, but now Christ 
is, we, is our clothing. He, he surrounds us. So what God sees in us is not you, but Christ in you. Do you see when, when God looks at us, he doesn't see David Fields. He sees Jesus Christ in, surrounded, clothed, Jesus in David Fields. That is our identity. And if we teach our kids and our grandkids, you better be good so that Jesus loves you. You better be good so Jesus will forgive you. You better be good so that you'll be good. We've, we're putting them into a place where they can't succeed because it didn't succeed. We need Jesus. So don't miss this idea that we are to be clothed in him. We've been emphasizing discipleship at our church. And as disciples, we're supposed to be teaching not just people to read their Bibles, but that they might see who they are in Christ. Now, the next section is a little bit harder. So let's just end here, and then Dave doesn't have to get in any trouble. All right, no, here we go. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Messiah Jesus. We're not divided in Christ. Um, now, there can be distinctions. He's not saying you no longer are a Jew, you are no longer a Gentile. They still are. There's, there's different likes and dislikes and cultural things. He's not saying that we're, there's no distinctions. He's saying we're not divided. There's differences in the sense, distinctions between male and female, but, but we're not divided in Christ. And so note the three barriers that Paul breaks down here. The first is the cultural barrier. Right? He's saying, let's get over this, this culture war. There's, there's distinctions, but we don't have to be divided by it. Even a class barrier, right? The, it, slave or free, rich or poor, there doesn't have to be a distinction. Uh, there's, I mean, there's distinctions, but there doesn't, we don't have to divide by it. Let me, just, let me just touch briefly on this slavery because we, we don't know what to do with it when we come up with it in Scripture. Why doesn't just Paul just say... There should be no institution of slavery. In some ways, there are some similarities between this practice of slavery and America's history with slavery. But there are also a lot of differences. In those days, there was no bankruptcy. There was no uh, federal loans. There was no you know, federal bailouts. There, there, there's no, and so if you got to a place where you just lost everything, your business failed, and you had debts, though in those days, you would go to a rich friend and you would say, buy me out. Fix this for me. 
and they would write the check and you would become their slave, their property. However, you would still work and you would get paid and you could buy your freedom after you had paid off your debts over time. You could, and history shows us that many people did buy their freedom in this system. Now, if Paul came out and said, this whole system is wrong, this is a small group of outsiders in the culture. Paul is already in a lot of trouble. And so, I mean, this would have just been, let's just get rid of this guy. What Paul is saying is, slavery exists, but in the church, when you come together, there's no division. That's already revolutionary. Because if I have to treat everybody in the equal in church, and we just said church isn't just for Sunday, what happens? It begins to slowly change the culture, at least the mindset. And I think Paul was very smart in what he did. Now, again, gender issues. Why didn't Paul just say this is the way it should be? Look, he has already made some revolutionary statements in this. We're all heirs. And he says here, we shouldn't be divided by this. I believe there's still some distinctions and we can argue about what those distinctions are. But Paul is bringing us closer together. And so in that, in Christ, we are revolutionary. And what do I mean by that? What Paul is doing in these churches is planting a small seed of change. And he is not saying go and fight against Rome. Um, in those days, you know, you could riot in the streets, but you would just end up dead. Okay? So he's not telling them to do that. What he is saying is, what I envision is a bunch of small communities living so countercultural that it changes the world. And you know what? It did. Now, don't get me wrong. We have many, many, many examples of the church getting it wrong. But when the church got it right, it was a beautiful thing. And so our challenge is not to say, how do I live as a Christian in this culture? Our challenge is to say, how do I live like Christ? In a way that changes the culture. And it means looking at Scripture with a fresh set of eyes. I absolutely believe the gospel was revolutionary. And it continues to be until we're more focused on being a part of the culture instead of being a part of the church. Sixth, he says, we are heirs with Christ. Chapter four, I mean that the heir, as long as the child is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. And then he says, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And what he is saying is that date has come. You're free. 
You're fully heirs. And I don't know what all that's going to look like. But I know what is to come is much, much greater than what is. And I have to believe in the goodness and generosity of my Heavenly Father. So he says we're free in Christ. The guardian uh, illustration here is played out. And he says now we have been redeemed and we have been adopted. Um, you know, that's a, that's a difficult um, picture uh, maybe for, for many of you, and I, I had the privilege of, of sitting in front of the judge right over here and uh, going through the process and him explaining it to us. What does this mean now? And he would ask us questions and he asked Kirsten questions and he signed a paper. And at that point in time, she became a legal part of our family. And Paul has used so many legal terms here. You've been justified. You've been adopted. These are, these are changes of status. And so he says here, we are free in Christ. You've been redeemed. You're, he's trying to tell these Gentiles, you're not on the outside going, trying to do all these things to catch up. You're already in the family. You're a full heir. That, that, that process has already been done. And he ends this kind of interesting here. He says, and because, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. He, he says here in this this freedom in Christ, this redemption, this adoption, it changes the way we relate to God. There's no going through the motions and setting up the altar and sacrificing the animals and burning the incense and just, just hoping and praying that God is listening to you. He says, no, he's, he's like your father. And he uses these really familiar terms. It, you, you cry out in a, in a daddy, papa sort of way. Now, I knew as a father, when my girls came up to me and they said, Dad, blah, 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 blah. But when my girls came up to me and they said, Daddy, something was coming. Daddy, it's just different. Okay? I knew a request was coming. I knew money was leaving my wallet. <laughs> and he says to you, go to him and say, Daddy. For some of us, that's difficult. That relationship was hard. That relationship was broken. That relationship didn't have a closeness. And for those of us that went through that, we have, to, we have to erase an image. And we have to jump onto this image of what our hearts wanted. And to say, Daddy, I believe in you. 
And I believe that you're good. It's a deep and profound passion, the words there. It's a calling out to God like a child appeals to a loving parent. But here's what we might miss in here. It's living in the reality that our Heavenly Father is present. We're not calling out, God, 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 God. We're calling out, Daddy, because He's right here. He's present. I think if Paul were here today, he would look us in the eyes and say, start living like you're a son of the Heavenly Father. Start living like your God is on the throne. Start living in the reality of who you are. So what's our application and action? How do we bring this home for us? I think we need to really understand and to, to deepen our sonship, I've said on the notes. Deepen this idea that we are sons. So talk to him like a son talks to a loving father. It's funny how we have a prayer language. Most of us have adopted it. You don't even realize it. I love to mess with people I'm discipling and I just listen to their prayers for a while. And then I pick a few words, things that I hear them saying. And then I say, okay, I want you to pray this week, but you can't use any of these words. Listen to your own prayers. You have words. You have rhythms you use. Dear Heavenly Father, you can't say Dear Heavenly Father. And you say, God. Can't say in Jesus' name. You can't, I, just, I just pick five or six words. And what turns in is grown people talking to God like they're two years old. Because their words won't flow the way they used to. Good. Have a conversation with God. Make it real. My grandfather was a godly man. I looked up to him immensely. I never had the chance or the, the, maybe the guts to ask him why when he prayed out loud, he prayed in King James. He didn't talk in King James. I don't know if he thought God spoke King James. I don't know. Let's just talk to him like he's present. Like he's there. Like he's listening. Because he is. Study the work of your father. What kind of things does your father want to see happen in the world? What type of things is your father concerned about in his kingdom? Maybe we should be more concerned with those things. Follow the life of your heavenly father as a son would. If you've ever just seen um, a little boy who admires his dad, if you, if you ever just watch it, the dad does something, the son does. It just copies it, right? Just repeats it. Why? Because he wants to be like dad. What if we did the same? What if the things that we copied 
were the things our Heavenly Father was doing. Let's pray. Uh, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship, even though it's in difficult circumstances and with limitations. Some are watching online, some are in person. We feel divided, yet it is a privilege that we get to continue to dig into your word, to sing, to connect. God, we pray for relief from this pandemic. We pray from the relief solutions and change of the social issues that are going on in our country and our world. In short, God, we prayed, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. As Rich mentioned, we pray for provisions for our church. We recognize that um, we are struggling. And yet we want to continue to be the light that you've called us to be. So we pray that you would give us wisdom. God, I pray that as we look at Galatians, we would be clear on what the gospel is and what it means for us to live it out, to put you on, to live in you in the culture in which you've called us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.